our new Philly Hongda campus here. We just came back from our leadership retreat, uh, which started on Friday night, and it just ended uh, today. Uh, it was a, a wonderful time together. Uh, we also had leadership retreats going on for our Busan church plant, as well as our new Philly Shilim church plant, uh, which meets uh, at 4 p.m. right here in this sanctuary. Uh, so there were three leadership retreats that took place uh, during this weekend. Uh, today, the sermon is going to be video streamed to all of our campuses except New Philly Pusan. Uh, they have a guest speaker down there. Uh, Pastor Marcus is in Pusan, and so he'll be preaching for New Philly Pusan today. Uh, but uh, Itaewon and Sydney and Shilim will be getting this uh, very important message which uh, I'm sure that Pusan will pick up on it and listen to anyway. Uh, two weeks ago, I finished my sermon series on wisdom with the body by talking about physical fitness. And we looked at a portion of 2 Peter chapter 1 together. And I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we begin this sermon today. 2 Peter is a few books before the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. Let's go to Revelation and just turn a few pages and you'll be at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We looked at that when I talked about my physical fitness sermon. I'm going to read this once again. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the ASV, it reads... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I'm going to keep reading to verse 10. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Everybody say, I will never fall. fall. If you practice these qualities, in the NIV, it's goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and agape love. If you practice these qualities, if you possess them in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. Or in the New King James, it says barren. You know, some Christians, they're just not very fruitful. They don't produce much fruit in their lives. And the Word of God here is saying, if you practice these qualities in increasing measure, practice going deeper in spiritual knowledge, Practice self-control. Practice perseverance. Practice godliness. Practice brotherly affection. Practice unconditional love. If you practice, you will never fall. And if these qualities are increasing, 
They will keep you from being ineffective or barren. Now today, I want to focus on the word godliness. Everybody say godliness. godliness. I'm going to turn to the main text for today. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4. You're going to need to keep your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Because we're going to really delve deep and take this passage apart. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to start by reading verses 7 through 9. Read in the ESV. It says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also. For the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Like I talked about a few weeks ago, physical fitness is of some value. You know, it can teach you about, you know, spiritual knowledge and analogies that are shared in the Bible. Teach you about perseverance. It can teach you about self-control. Some of you, you know, you need to learn more self-control. And taking up um, physical fitness or taking up some kind of intramural sport may actually teach you about self-control. And I told you that physical fitness has value. It has some value. It will keep us physically healthy, which is a good thing. And it teaches us all these other things. But where the Bible says physical fitness has some value, Scripture teaches us that godliness has value in every way. The New King James Version says, Godliness is profitable for all things. Uh, The Living Bible offers a fascinating, dynamic, equivalent translation. The Living Bible says this, Bodily exercise is alright, but spiritual exercise is much more important and is a tonic for all you do. So exercise yourself spiritually and practice being a better Christian because that will help you not only now in this life, but in the next life too. Godliness is described as spiritual exercise. Now, I'm not trying to nullify my my message on physical fitness. We need to get with it, honor God with our physical bodies by getting involved with some physical fitness. There's wisdom in that. But today, I'm talking about something far more weighty than physical fitness. I'm talking about spiritual fitness, spiritual exercise. As the Bible describes it as godliness. And the ESV we just read, 1 Timothy 4, 7, notice that it says, train yourself for godliness. Like it said in 2 Peter chapter 1, practice these qualities. Practice godliness train yourself you know when it comes to godliness we as christians we got to learn how to train ourselves for it just like we would train ourselves for volleyball martial arts or to get ready to run a marathon we got to practice and train ourselves in godliness amen so what is godliness 
What is this thing that is so valuable that it holds promise for this life and the next? What is godliness? Well, the Greek word godliness in the New Testament is eusebeia. Eusebeia. And it's translated uh, genuine piety, including holiness, reverence, faith, love, and devotion to God. Piety. It's like an old word for uh, like godliness, you know? Uh, Piety. All right, you guys. The Holman Dictionary defines it as respect for God that affects the way a person lives. Unger's Dictionary defines it as the sum of religious virtues and duties. I just simply will summarize godliness as believing and behaving in a way that reflects God's character. A person who has godliness... When you see their lives consistently, you're able to consistently see the character of God. You see the reflection of Christ. That's what it means to have godliness. Now, as Christians, we all can exhibit godliness here and there. But to exhibit godliness consistently, steadfastly, that takes training and practice. Anybody, any knucklehead who's out of shape can run one mile or one and a half miles. But it takes training and practice to finish a marathon. And not just to finish, but to finish in the top 10. And we as Christians, we treat godliness like that. We go, oh yeah, I could be like, I could be Christ-like on a good day when I have my quiet time and I went to sleep early and things are good with my wife. Yeah, I could exhibit Christ-like character. We, we, we treat godliness that way, but the Bible is much more weighty when it comes to it. It says, train yourself so you're, that you will always and consistently exhibit godliness, that you will practice these qualities because it has value in every way. It's profitable for all things. You know, the opposite of godliness is ungodliness. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ungodly people, they suppress the truth. And just by living their lives, they incur God's wrath on themselves. They do not honor God. They do not give thanks to Him. They are full of futile speculations and theories and conspiracies. They profess to be wise, but they are fools because they exchange the glory of God for the image of birds and animals. The ungodly, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship created things rather than the creator. They fall into sexual immorality. Romans 1.28 continues on describing the ungodly. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, 
heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Talking about practicing godliness. The ungodly, they practice ungodliness. And they also approve of those who practice it. You know, we look at this description of the ungodly. And we tend to think to ourselves, man, good thing I'm not like them. Because they are wicked, insolent, arrogant, full of malice, gossipers, strife. We look down on such people and we feel good about ourselves, don't we? But what's really interesting, if you ever read the Bible, is that the Apostle Paul goes from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and he switches up the pronoun. Chapter 1, he talks about they, they, the ungodly. Let me describe to you what the ungodly are like, these idolaters, these people who don't know who God is. He says, they, 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 and in verse 1 of Romans chapter 2, he starts with you. Can I read the rest of it for you? They, 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 verse 1 of chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You gossip, you fall into pride, envy, malice. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, what a hypocrite, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance. It's not that God is saying what you're doing is okay. It's just that he's being patient and kind with you in hopes that it will lead you to repentance. Now we tend to think, thank you God that I'm not like the ungodly. But the truth is, we have no ground to boast and look down on those people who struggle that way. Because the truth of the matter is... We all struggle with the things that the ungodly dive into. We are all pulled in that direction at one point or another. And the, the reason why we are tempted, even as Christians, we're still tempted and pulled that way, is because the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, original sin, has devastated the entire human race. It has re- affected all of the offspring of, the, of humankind. And there is no human being, Jew or Gentile, super religious or irreligious, that can stand righteous before holy God. So the author of Romans goes into explaining that God has provided us an external righteousness that gives us right standing with God. He describes this in verse 22 of Romans 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? Of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. You see, faith is the great equalizer for every Christian. We don't, we're not Christians because we're more intellectual than non-Christians. Or because we get it and they don't. We're not Christians because we lived a little bit more of a virtuous life and God had favor on us than our pagan friends that are still parting it up at the clubs. The only reason you have right standing and your non-believing friends don't is because of faith. And if you continue to read the scriptures, you will think, oh, well, then at least I can boast about my faith. No, even the faith that you have, the Bible explains, is a gift of God. God gives you the ability to believe. If he did not give you that grace to believe, you would still be living like the ungodly, completely desensitized. So there is no ground for boasting. Because on what grounds? Because of faith. We are saved by grace through faith. So as Christians, we may be tempted to think, I want to practice godliness, and I'm so thankful that I'm not like these ungodly. The apostle Paul encouraged us to think a little different. Instead, you should be thinking, man, I'm more prone to behave like the ungodly than I would like to admit. Thank God that I don't have to depend on my own godliness to have right standing before God. But that God has provided one through his son, Jesus. I have no grounds for boasting in my spiritual performance. Everything I have today is a result of God's grace. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to think. Not, let me practice godliness and avoid those ungodly people who I look down on. It is, man, I'm in the same boat. Like, I have been devastated just as much as they have by the effects of the fall. I need to be careful not to fall into any kind of pride or boasting because I'm a recipient of grace and I need that continual grace to walk in godliness. So there is godliness and then there's ungodliness. But there's one more thing that we as Christians must be aware of. If we uh, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, put, you're going to have to come back to 1 Timothy. So just go to 2 Timothy. It's just two pages away, usually, most of your Bibles. There's godliness, there's ungodliness, and there's one more thing we've got to be aware of. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It says, verse 1, understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to your parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen, conceit, lovers of pleasure than, rather than lovers of God. And it's very interesting. Verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, 
burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men in the Old Testament. Okay. What is the author of 2 Timothy talking about here? There is godliness, there is ungodliness, and Paul here describes a third category, a fake godliness. There are certain people who have the appearance of godliness. Hello, brother. Oh, God bless you. I give to the poor. I fast every week. I pray three times a day. Hello, brother. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, how many of you guys know that godliness has power? You see, godliness does not come by just mere moral effort. Godliness comes as a result of the Holy Spirit's power sanctifying you through and through. See, in evangelical sanctification teaching... There's no place for the pneumatology. There's no place for the Holy Spirit's role in the sanctification process. It's very much very man-centered. It's very man-centric. Go read your Bible. Go pray. You know, avoid these vices. This is how you achieve godliness. But if you look at Paul's writings in the New Testament, his view of sanctification was very much connected with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That when men were filled by the Holy Spirit, they're filled by the fire of God. They begin to have a new burning for holiness that they could not get from Bible study. And so I know that um, the Pentecostal denomination, they have views about sanctification that's connected to the Holy Spirit, which I am not fully persuaded of. Is I don't think uh, there's some disagreement i have there as i studied the pentecostal holiness movement theology of the holy spirit's role in sanctification now i believe holy spirit's power has a role in our sanctification for us to be more christ-like but you have to be careful with some of these views because they are sometimes over-realized you have to understand that our full sanctification comes when jesus returns but some of these guys believe that if you try really, really hard and you get filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again, you roll around on the carpet many, many times, you can be holy on this side of, the, uh, this side of uh, your life. That you can be perfect and holy. And, and so if you go to some of these denominations, some of the, the remains of this cultural this the, sanctification theology is, what do they make you do? They make you sit, uh, men here, women here. Women, uh, we measure your skirt when you come in. Uh, uh, you know, men, you got to have a certain haircut. You cannot uh, wear a certain thing. You know, it's, it's like very strict. No dancing. No dancing. You know, and there's all these rules. But, but the Bible also teaches us that external rules do not have the ability to change your heart. That's why the Holy Spirit has to do the work as you focus on Jesus. Um, anyway, I don't know how I got off on that sanctification view. Uh, where, where was I? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Godliness comes with power. 
So there's people who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of God. And the author of 2 Timothy here says, avoid such people. They're fakes. They're imposters. Those who claim to know God and give off this holy facade, but their lives are void of the Holy Spirit's power, Paul associates them with a long list of selfish, proud, and pleasure-loving people. In other words, there is a fake godliness, and there is an authentic godliness. Some people call the fake godliness the religious spirit. It was exemplified by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and it continues to be found in churches everywhere today. Every denomination, this religious spirit exists, continually pulling at our hearts. To have the appearance of godliness, but deny the power. Now, how do you tell the difference? I believe you look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit's power and presence at work in their lives. When their spirit's power is at work, the results will include not just growth and new desires for holiness, but it's going to include spiritual gifts, signs and wonders. Miracles and healings, effectiveness and boldness and advancing the kingdom and, and preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel of Christ. All of that, as well as Christ-like character, is going to be evident for those who are filled by the Holy Spirit. If you see no evidence of God's power at work in a person's life, that person's godliness is probably exaggerated at best and it's completely fake at worst. Y'all hear me. I'm teaching you to be discerning here today. You know, so many of you, you're so impressed when somebody's got the external appearance of godliness. But you see, I grew up in the urban setting. In the urban setting, appearances, they don't matter. You know, you can look all tough, but if you get into a street fight and you can't hold your own, the whole school knows you can't fight. The whole school knows you just got, you know, a lot of size, but you got, no, you got no fight in you. Appearances didn't mean nothing on the streets. And so now that I'm in the church, man, I don't, I don't, get, I don't get very impressed by appearances of godliness. You know, you, you, you telling me you have an effective ministry, you have a powerful ministry. Well, tell me about that powerful ministry. Show me where the Holy Spirit's at work. Oh, oh, everybody's reading, uh, uh, you know, all the Reformed theology, you know, all the Gospel Coalition guys at your church. Oh, they, they all must have the right answers and they must know the Gospel inside out. I'm not impressed by that. Because I've been to churches like that. It's full of hypocrites. Full of hypocrites. In fact, that's the devil's way to hide behind the lack of substance. It's just all having holy talk and righteous talk and having all the reformed and right answers. And, you know, this is coming from a guy. I, I'm reformed through and through in, in terms of my theology and, and my views of salvation and, and election. I'm very, I'm very reformed. But, man, there's things that are as part of the reform movement that just, man, it just, it just irks me. It just irks me because there's so much of this fake godliness that goes on.
The Sadducees, they were a Jewish sect in the time of Jesus, who were very devout on the outside, but they knew very little of God's power. You know, one time they confronted Jesus, tried to trap him, and asked him a question about marriage. Here's Jesus. He didn't even answer or address their question. Instead, he rebuked him, and he, he said, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. People were like, damn. He shut up the Sadducees. Yeah, Jesus, do it. People who have the appearance of godliness but deny the power. Paul calls such people in 2 Timothy 3.13, he calls them imposters, fakes, hypocrites. And he exhorts us to avoid such people. Avoid such people. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. You know, they don't seem that bad. You know, come on. Come on, Pastor Christian. You're telling me to avoid such people. The Bible says avoid such people. Now, if you really read this context of this chapter, what's fascinating is if you read a few verses before 2 Timothy chapter 3, the command avoid such people may seem like a contradiction to what you find in chapter 2 verses 24 to 26, where Paul exhorts us to be kind to everybody. And correct our opponents in gentleness with the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So which is it? Do we try to correct and be kind and correct our opponents in gentleness, hoping that God will lead them to repentance to the knowledge of the truth? Or do we avoid them? Come on, author of 2 Timothy, what do we do? Well, Here's where some commentators give some good insight. Uh, the, although the Apostle Paul exhorts us to be patient and correct our opponents in hopes of leaving, leading them to repentance, he begins chapter 3 with a but. All right? Like, try to correct them. Hopefully, God will lead them to uh, repentance and knowledge of the truth. But! He uses that word but. He says, but understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He uses that word, but, to break us from any kind of overly optimistic picture. Because what does he do in chapter 3? He paints like the great tribulation. <laughs> I mean, this is some, some very selfish, sinful people he's describing here, you know? And so he tries to break us from an overly optimistic picture. God may grant repentance to some, but it is clear that wickedness will increase and many imposters will creep into the church and spread false teachings and continually oppose the truth. So he ends by assuring us in verse 9, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 3, he assures us that do not fret because their agendas will not get very far. God's going to expose them like Jans and Jambers from, uh, who opposed Moses in the Old Testament. God's going to make it plain that they're imposters. So, which is it? It's both, right? You want to gently instruct them, hopefully rebuke them, lead them to knowledge of the truth. But you know what? If you rebuke 10 people in a week and only one of them actually turns and repents and comes to knowledge of the truth, rejoice. Because that's the normal rate of uh, repentance you'll probably see. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. 
And, I, and some people will be like, well, I did it 10 times and only one person turned around. I'm never doing this again. And they get all disillusioned and discouraged. And the Bible says, no, no, just rejoice over that one person. Okay? Keep doing it. Keep doing it. But you know what? For, the, for those who didn't turn, avoid them. Avoid them. Because they have a different agenda. They, they all, oh, let me join your Bibles. I love the Bible. I love, I love the CG. Can we pray together? Can I pray out loud? 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 Oh, Lord, holy God, most true God, righteous in all your ways. We love you. We thank you. Hallelujah. I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for Naima. I thank you for Una. I thank you for Helen. I thank you. I bless them, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, good gl- gl- glory to God. Hall- Can I keep praying? Can I keep praying? They come in. With all this appearance of godliness, and you say, hey, um, thank you for your prayer. We're going to take this time, and we're going to pray for some physical sickness to be healed. You're going to do what? We're going to pray for uh, this college student. She's been really pressing in for her prayer language, her gift of tongues to be activated. We're going to pray for her right now. We believe that she's going to start breaking out in tongues. Can we just study the Bible? Uh, that made me uncomfortable. What, why does the power of God make you uncomfortable? Okay, maybe you're new to it. Let me, let me explain some testimonies of, of good fruit that's come forth from people experiencing the power of God. You give them all these testimonies. You give them a hundred testimonies, and he's still, I don't want nothing to do with that. You know, I'm going to stop coming to your CG. Uh, because every week, somebody's getting baptized by the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And you know what? Um, that's not the best way I want to spend my Wednesday night. And I'm not going to come anymore. If you keep doing that, I'm not going to come. Uh, you think there aren't people like that. There are people like that in the church all the time. They come through New Philly too. Oh, man, they come through New Philly. And, and, and you know what? You know what? They never, they never come and try to confront me. Because, you know, they're a little bit maybe intimidated. Because, you know, I carry a lot of authority. You know? Like the guy who's, like, knuckleheaded and is thick-skinned and, and, and is immature, they're coming and confront me. You know? And, and I, I gently com- rebuke them or confront them. But a lot of times, these, these homeboys, you know what they would do? They, they start opposing our women ministers. And they say, hey, uh, you shouldn't pray for people like that. Hey, you're a woman. You shouldn't be laying hands on somebody's head. Oh, you're a woman. Why are you teaching the word of God? Oh, we have a different uh, exegetic, exegesis interpretation of scripture. We believe that God blesses women to minister and teach them and preach the word of God to all adults. And the, inter- the four prohibitions, we've exegetically dealt with them. We interpreted them. And we just don't interpret it the way that it's traditionally done. And we feel like it's the, it's the sound interpretation of interpretation of scripture and they hear all that explanation and they still go so why are they um, preaching <laughs> well okay well maybe you're not convinced by that but hey uh, power of God flows through Pastor Myoma you know I mean Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be under the same impression for these prohibitions <laughs> he should Holy Spirit should get like he should get, get a time out because <laughs> Myoma's ministering to adult men and they're getting Laid out in Nepal, in Philippines, and here in Korea. And the person's just like, all right, okay, I'll see you at CG.
Like, and they come in and they just, they just give us a hard time. But they don't stay long because we, we, don't, we, don't we don't let them feel comfortable. That's the way it should be. Why should we feel uncomfortable? They should feel uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? They want to come in and deny the power of God and have all their appearance of godliness. That doesn't really impress us at all anyway. We should make them uncomfortable. Say, hey, you want to stay at this church? You're going to have to open up your heart a little bit, even just a little bit to the power of God. Why are you crying today at CG? It's because the Holy Spirit's touching you, brother. That's the power. That's just open your heart a little bit more. No, 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 no. Anyway, Paul says, all right, not all of them are going to repent, but check it out. Don't fret. They're not going to get very far. Uh, I'm going to read to you 2 Timothy chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. Just write down the reference if you're taking notes. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I'm going to read in the ESV. It says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence... By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What's that talking about? That's talking about godliness. Partakers of the divine nature. That is godliness through and through. That's godliness and character along with the power. You cannot partake in divine nature without having both the character and the power of God flowing through you. And what Second Peter chapter 1 says is God has granted us all that we need to develop godliness. In other words, there is no lack. God gives you full access. There is no excuse. No, no Christian can ever appear before God and say, God, you didn't give me enough equipment. You didn't give me enough promises. I had no, I had no chance to develop my godliness. No one will ever be able to say that before God. Because the Bible says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is nothing missing. You know, sometimes, you know, some Christians, they come through the doors of the church and they're like, I think I'm missing something. And we talk to them and we're like, "Uh, no, you got everything. It's just you got to walk in it. You got to overcome your unbelief. You got to open your heart to the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will help you. He might scare you in the beginning. But he'll comfort you after he scares you. <laughs> you'll get used to it. And you'll realize that this is Christianity at its best. But there's no lack. You're not missing nothing. So as it says in 2 Peter 1.10, if you look later in 1.10, that's the verse I read at the very beginning. We've got to practice godliness. And as it says in 1 Timothy 4.7, we've got to train ourselves for godliness because we have no lack. Through the knowledge of Jesus and by faith in his great promises, we have all that we need to be partakers of his divine nature. That's powerful. You know, when we get as a church before Jesus... We want to resemble him, don't we? If we are truly sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we are co-heirs with Christ, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother, we ought to resemble our brother Jesus, right? 
We ought to resemble our Father God. Amen? If you don't grow in godliness, you're going to appear before Jesus. And there might be things about Jesus that will make you uncomfortable. Because you just haven't grown to reflect his character. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, go back to First Timothy chapter 3. It's the main text. Uh, we're going to rewind to chapter 3, verse 16. Verses 14 to 16. I'm going to read it in the ESV. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Oh, 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 oh there's that word again. Eusebia. Eusebia. Godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? Okay. We confess the mystery of godliness. And this is what follows. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh... What were we talking about? (laughs) The mystery of godliness. Okay, so let me connect it for you. The context of this passage here, chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. The context, if you read it before, earlier in the chapter, is the qualifications for church leaders. Okay? The mystery of godliness refers to, if you read this, this is like a hymn. Uh, Some commentators say that what he's quoting here is like a hymnal. It's like a praise song that we might sing on a Sunday. You know, what we sing earlier, like, you know, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our hearts. We pour out our praise. It's your breath. It's like me quoting a song all of a sudden in the middle of my sermon. Apostle Paul here quotes some kind of hymn in the middle of his letter. And he uses the lyrics of this hymn. To describe the mystery of godliness. Now, when he describes the mystery of godliness, he refers to God's revealed plan of salvation in Christ. This poetic summary of the gospel message, it refers to Christ's incarnation, his resurrection, his message being preached all over the world, and then his ascension or his future glory. What is the author trying to say? He says, you want to practice godliness? You want to grow in godliness? Let me reveal to you the secret of godliness. It's Jesus. Your prototype for godliness is Jesus. Look at his life, death, and ascension. This is the pattern for our godliness. And those who repent and believe on him, he covers us with his perfect righteousness and that he enables us to walk in true godliness. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. You know, Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You want to know what godly looks like? You want to know what godliness, growing in godliness looks like? Look upon Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, he will keep us from falling into patterns of ungodly behavior. If you keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, he will keep us from falling into fake godliness and this religious spirit who has an appearance of godliness but denies the power. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will continue to be inspired to grow in godliness. Because Jesus is God in human flesh. And you, through faith in Christ, are supposed to be God in human flesh. You get what I'm saying? The incarnation is not just exclusive to Jesus, the Son of God. The incarnation, through faith in Christ, should be taking place in every Christian's life. Jesus should be birthed out of us, grow out of us, mature and exhibited out of us. His love, his goodness, his gentleness, his self-control, but also his power, anointing power should flow. That's what it means to grow in godliness. And that's why he is the mystery of godliness. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for overseers and deacons you will notice that the focus is on character rather than ministry skills. In other words, the qualifications of being an elder and deacon in the local church is godliness. The qualification does not consist of height, weight, or athletic ability, praise the Lord. (laughs) It is all about godliness. Why? Because godliness has value in every way. You can have a skilled, ministry skilled person, or you can have a person who's growing in godliness. Give me the guy who's growing in godliness on, in any day. Because he, he, he has something that has value in every way. This guy has value. All right, he's got value. Okay, I admit, he's got some skills. Okay, he played the guitar, he can sing. But is he going to last? You see, um, what's interesting is, um, this is a little ad lib I'm going to add on top. Uh, when you read these qualifications, right before uh, this uh, mystery of godliness that the uh, author explains, he says that, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how a person should behave in the household of God, especially the leaders, which is the church. A pillar on, and buttress, you know, I don't know what buttress is, but it's probably something similar to a pillar, okay? Something that, uh, what is it? A buttress is something like this, right? Am, am, I, am I right? It like holds up like the ceiling? Okay, I'm not an architect. Anyway, pillar and buttress of truth, right? Uh, the household of the church is the pillar of truth on this earth. Okay, what's that got to do with godliness? Okay. You see... Without godliness, remember, the ungodly, they suppress the truth. Well, people who have godliness, they exalt the truth. 
They live out the truth. They exhibit the truth. And when you don't have godliness, the truth will not be upheld as like a, like, like, you know, the pillars are like, if you think of a church, the church leaders are the pillars of the church. You know, you go down to uh, our church plant in Sydney, and our Sydney church leaders, they are the pillars of that church. If those leaders, they all got food poisoning on the same weekend, I mean, we might have to cancel service, right? Because, you know, I don't know who will get up and say whatever, you know? Though they are the pillars of, uh, of truth. They're the, they uphold truth. But here's the thing. When you don't have Christ-like character and godliness in, among your leaders, and they're living their lives however way they want, with no accountability, you know, or, or they're very skilled in preaching and leading prayer, but they are abrasive and a jerk and won't apologize for the mistakes that they make in interpersonal conflicts. That truth is not going to be able to stand. Godliness keeps the truth upheld. Without godliness, no one's going to believe this truth that you are proclaiming. This is why it's so important that church leaders meet these qualifications. Apostle, the author says uh, a church leader should not be a recent convert or he may fall into the condemnation of the devil and fall into pride. So, you know, let, let, me, re, let me read real quick some of these uh, qualifications. Above reproach, faithful to his wife. Hallelujah. Can we get an amen on that one? Yes. I mean, if a, lead, if, if, if a church leader is not faithful to his wife... We need to take them down right away. Amen? Yes. If that person is going and um, going to strip clubs, oh, we need to take them down. If they go and get to a massage parlor and get some sexual favors done, oh, we need to take them down. You hear what I'm saying? Oh, oh if no one knows about it, it won't hurt. Oh, God knows about it. Holy Spirit's grieving them the moment they go in, they still go in. That's not godliness. You got to be faithful to your wife, self-controlled, sober-minded, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, this is an overseer, a, a, like an elder, like, a, like my position. You got to be able to teach. If you can't teach, man, you sh- shouldn't be up here, okay? Amen? You think I can teach? I, I know I teach long, but I, I do. At least I can teach, right? Okay, I'll try to shorten it. Oh, hallelujah, give me. Uh, stop laughing so I can hurry up and finish. Uh, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a drunkard, okay? Which means, look, you can have a drink. You can have a drink. Don't get drunk, all right? Not a drunkard, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not a recent convert, must be good at managing his own family, okay? Qualifications of deacon, you got to be dignified. Right? If you if reveling in all kinds of foolishness every weekend, no, 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 no. You can't be a leader in the church. And this goes to the young people in here. Y'all got to get out of some of the foolishness y'all involved with. You got to take yourself a little more seriously. I mean, don't take yourself so seriously, but take yourself a little more seriously. (laughs) That's just advice from my youth. From no, from me now to your youth. (laughs) I I I didn't take myself seriously anyway. um, Dignified, not double tongued, not a drunkard, not greedy for dishonest gain, blameless, faithful to one wife. There it is again. Manage his family well. What is this saying? It's talking about godliness. Church leaders don't have godliness. The truth is not going to be upheld on the earth. Now, 
If you reread uh, our original passage today, 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 10. Let me land the plane here. Let me land the plane right here. Verses 7 to 10. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And look at verse 10. For to, for to this end, we toil and strive. In the New King James, it says, For to this end, we suffer reproach. To this end. To what end? To the goal of presenting you in godliness before Christ. To this end. To bringing you to greater and greater levels of spiritual maturity. To this end and goal, we toil and strive. It's very similar to First Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, where it says, To this end I labor, struggling with all of his energy, which so powerfully works within me. The previous verse says, Presenting everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I labor. To present everyone fully mature in Christ. You know, a good pastor... This is like biblical Christianity right here. A good pastor, this should be their burning goal. It's not to just get people saved. Not to just get people started in following Jesus. A good pastor, a good elder in the church, this should be their burning passion. Is to present you fully mature in Christ. Is to get you to train yourself up, get up off your lazy butt, and train yourself, practice godliness, and grow and be consistent in it. Exhibit the fruit of the Spirit as well as the gifts of the Spirit. That's godliness right there. That should be the goal of every overseer of the church. And you know what? That's what burns inside of me. This is, when, this is why when, you know, people, they come out to church and they just want to attend Sunday service. And I look at them with holy jealousy, fire in my eyes. I say, join a community group. <laughs> why won't you join a community group? <laughs> come on, we won't bite. We promise it'll be safe. Just join a community group. Why, why, why do I say that with such passion and burning zeal? Because I don't want to just see you come in and attend a service. I want to see growing godliness. And in order to grow in godliness, you need people, community of people, lovable and unlovable, to get all up in your life. And for you to show your belly and be vulnerable in front of them about your weaknesses, your mistakes, get some accountability on you, share about the word of God, share about life. Get down deep in there. That's going to bring you to full maturity. I mean, just, I don't know why God designed it that way, but he did. He did. Like, you cannot grow. Like, like the church, if only a few people are growing, that is a freakish thing, if you think about it, in the analogy of the body of Christ. I mean, I'm about to have a baby, right? I'm about to have a baby in two months, right? We're about to have a baby at the end of January. Imagine we, our little baby daughter you know, arrives. Oh, so beautiful, so cute. Oh. Three months later, the right hand is growing, but not the rest of her body. And we're like, uh, are, we, 
we doing something wrong? Should we change the formula? What should we do? You know, and then, and then, oh, hallelujah, her left foot is growing. So it's her right hand and her left foot are all large. The rest of her body is still infant. That, that's like the picture of a church where only a few people are growing in Christ. What are we going what kind of bride do we want to present to Jesus on wedding day? church in New Philadelphia, when we appear before Jesus as a local church, as a family of believers who walk together, fought together, lived together, when we appear before him, I want us to present before him a beautiful godliness where Jesus says, that's me. She's beautiful. I have so much joy. And finally seeing her face to face. Look at this beautiful church. Look at this beautiful church. And I really pray that that's what he says about our church. You know, he doesn't say that about every church. Church of Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You think you're uh, rich. You're naked and one-eyed and blind. I hope he, he says over our church, man. Beautiful. Look at that. They didn't just do the work of ministry, but they grew in godliness. You know, like, let me just close with this. You know, when you um, do, you get involved with church ministry, whether you're leading a praise team, you go on a mission trip, uh, you serve on the service team, you know, lead as a community group leader, discipleship, whatever you do. Involvement with ministry can often enhance our growth in godliness. Amen? Amen? I mean, I, that's why we encourage you. Join the you know, community groups, you know, get involved with the service team, stuff like that. But we must also be mindful that when our heart loses its way, this ministry involvement can actually hinder or distract our growth in godliness. True story. Especially when we can hide behind our Christian vocabulary or use our ministry involvement to cover up hard issues, our refusal to go and reconcile with the brother, uh, character issues that God wants us to deal with. You know, we might just make ourselves feel better about ourselves by saying, look, I'm leading praise. So what if I have rage issues? I'm leading praise. It's okay. It even it balances it out. <laughs> Right? That kind of thinking. Like people fall into that kind of thinking. And it's the sensitive tension that we got to learn how to balance. Even as your pastor, I got to be careful to not cover up my lack of growth in godliness with my ministry involvement and success. I cannot hide behind my ministry involvement. You know, because when I try to do it before God, and I have tried. <laughs> God says, what are you doing, son? I, I love your heart. I love all the involved. I love what you're doing for me. But remember, I'm more interested in who you're becoming than what you can do for me. You know, that, that was the words of my, uh, my college mentor, Brother Michael. You know, he said to me, Brother Christian, remember this, this one thing. Because he saw I have a lot of character issues. And I still do, right? But when I was in college, I had a lot. And he would always say, God is more interested in who you're becoming than what you can do for him. 
Remember that, brother. Brother Christian. And I'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm leading praise. <laughs> I'm reading my Bible. Brother Michael, no, Christian. Brother, brother. God is more interested in who you're becoming than what you can do for him. And those words have haunted me again and again and again because the Holy Spirit keeps reminding me of those words. And that's what the Bible is saying. Train yourselves in godliness for it has value in every way. It is profitable in all things. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that each and every person in here, that today, as they hear this word being preached, that there will be a release of grace into the lives of every person sitting here. A breath of momentum being released. To move us toward godliness. And we don't want just spurts of godliness now and then to make ourselves feel better. We want to be steadfast and displaying the character of Christ. We want to be steadfast and always willing and ready to display the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to grow in godliness in every way. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who had the appearance of godliness but denied the power. God, give give us the fruit of the Spirit as well as the gifts of the Spirit that we may exhibit both the character of Christ and the power of Christ. For those in here who are struggling with being sucked back into a lifestyle of backsliding, lifestyle of ungodliness. God, I just pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ will just completely dispossess them from any kind of leaning toward a life of ungodliness. And we just pray that all of us in here, from a place of humility, we will understand That there is no grounds for boasting. Each and every one of us, saved by grace through faith. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the great prototype of godliness. You embody the mystery of godliness. You came down to this earth to show us what godliness looks like. And we say it is glorious. It is beautiful what it looks like for a human being to be filled by the Spirit of God. What it looks like for a human being to exhibit godliness. We look upon Jesus and see it and it is beautiful. And we pray, Lord, let us become that which we behold. As we behold the glory and face of Jesus, let us continually become as we are with veil faces behold Jesus transform us Lord from glory to glory transform us Lord from glory to glory 
We ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Come on. As we sing this song, I just want to encourage you, just gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. Whether you think about the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, whether you just want to physically just imagine what his face looks like or, or the scars on his hands or feet, just gaze upon King Jesus. Look upon Jesus. And you can look upon him. You don't have to think, oh, I, I only have to think of a blank face because no one can see God. No, that's not true. God became man. God became human flesh so that when we worship, we can look upon a human being and know we're still worshiping God. You know, Jesus, when we appear before him in glory, he's going to still be in human flesh. He is not going to lose his flesh and blood. You're going to be able to hug him. He's not going to be some spiritual being that you're going to try to run and hug and then totally miss. He's going to have a human body. We're going to be able to love him and kiss him and thank him and bow before him. And the book of Revelation says, angels, legions of them surround the throne, the son of man. And they worship him and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Worthy and worthy is the lamb who was slain. Gaze upon Jesus. Gaze upon him as you worship him right now.